Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield and this is a podcast about our common life, how we live well in our deeply diverse societies and the people behind the positions in our public conversations. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation I had with Adam Wagner. Adam is a barrister at Doughty Street Chambers, a visiting professor at Goldsmiths University, chair of the human rights charity Each Other and host of the Better Human podcast. We spoke about why he is suspicious or perhaps nervous of the concept of the sacred, his Jewish religious practice, why human rights frameworks temper our worst selves, and why he is still a fan of Twitter. I hope you enjoy listening. Adam, I'm going to lob the uh, conversational bomb into the interview right at the beginning, which is not asking uh, about our gentle small questions, but asking what you hold sacred. And you can pick up and run with that word however you like. Some people are very familiar with the terminology. Some people react strongly against it. And there's a strong theme coming through in interviews that you there's no real such thing as an individual collective sacred. It's something that we gather around. But in asking people to reflect on the deepest principles they try and live by, the things that they'd feel very compromised if they were asked to give them up, it just gives us, um, shifts us into a different different way of reflecting, really. Uh, what bubbles up for you? What what are your associations with that word or what do you think your values might be? First of all, thanks so much for having me on the podcast, Elizabeth. It's a, it's a real pleasure and it's a bit of a... Um, a bit of a divergence from my usual podcasting. <laughs> so I, I'm going to, so bear with me. Um, it, it, it's interesting because when you asked me the question um, and, and I heard the question before, the first thing that came into my mind is, is I, I, I reacted against that as in maybe I, I, I like to think that maybe I don't hold anything sacred. Um, and, and I'll explain what I mean by that. Um, I, I think that the way I try and go about the world is, and, and based on experience as, as well as my sort of values is that I try not to hold anything as sacred um, in the sense that I don't like, and, and I, I react against, I always have reacted against the idea that there are some concepts or beliefs or, you know, worldviews which explain everything and which are everything and which, which must be defended to the death. Um, because I, I think, and I think one of the, one, something I've come to believe is that it's it's those it's that thought process and that uh, approach to the world that often leads to the problems we have is is believing that something that I in my own mind see as the answer and um, for whatever reason maybe because it's part of my religion or part of my worldview or part of my national history or nationalism um, that, that 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 has that that is worth dying for. Um, and and I and I've got a bit of a problem with that. I think that I'd, I'd quite like not to people not to die for for ideas like that. And I think too many people have died, especially in the last hundred years, because of ideas. Um, but but on the other hand, if, if I if I'm a bit less extreme about my definition of sacred, um, just to flip it back on my on myself, I, for me the the most important things in my life, if that's how I define it, um, are my family are my community and I think it, thinking in terms of concentric circles um, and my you know the, the the work that I do and, and try and do in, in human rights that's my you know th- that that's my vocation and that's my career and, and but but I, I don't know if I'd describe any of those things as sacred that is, that is totally fine um, when I mentioned to you that various of my other guests had uh, said that their sacred value 
human rights. It's been really interesting, actually. I've done 65 of these now and going back and grouping the kind of things that come up. You didn't seem surprised that human rights could be sacred. And I was uh, interested if that is what you would say. Why do you think that is something that some people hold sacred and how do you feel about it? Well, Francesca Klug, um, who's a professor at UCL and um, was one of the architects of the Human Rights Act, calls human rights values for a godless age. And, and I think there's, there's a lot in that. Um, and, and it's really interesting, the history of human rights, um, it, it, that, that people like, I think, particularly human rights advocates and people who advocate for human rights often look at them as some sort of sort of magical invention which sits outside of the rest of history that kind of came to end history in the Francis Fukuyama sense of we, we've got these these liberal values came from beside everything else, all this messy religion and, you know, faith and um, all these failed political experiments. And out of the, the, the flames, like a phoenix, came human rights, these values that we can, if we only just embed them in every society, in every part of society, that will be the end of history. We'll, 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 have, we'll have finished. We'll, we'll be fine. And, and, that, and they therefore become almost like a religious creed or... or, or exactly like a religious creed. There's something which people, you know, that you've got the the Ten Commandments of Human Rights, which is the Universal Declaration. And there's even a, a poster of the Universal Declaration that looks like the Ten Commandments. <laughs> it looks like it's inscribed in stone. Um, and these are these are the, the, they're the rules, um, that we go, how, how we go about our lives. Um, I, I'm, I'm much, I'm more of a skeptic in that sense. I think human rights are a, a, a good attempt um, that has that has evolved over hundreds, if not thousands, of years. You know, going back, you can take them a long way back through. And they've been influenced by, you know, yes, Magna Carta, yes, the English Bill of Rights, yes, the French Declaration of the Rights of Man, but also um, religious teachings. You know, in 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 all different religions, um, have taught you know things like. Um, love thy neighbor as you love yourself. That's, I, I think, goes back a very, very long way um, back to the Old Testament. And it's something which is at the heart of human rights values. But, but I think on, on the, the other side of that is that for people who aren't, when we take God out of the equation um, and God has been, or gods have been such a fixture in the development of human ethics and values when you take that out and this is i guess what francesca klug is getting at it's still there's still a deep human urge to rally around as some sort of symbolic almost sort of you know traditional and maybe tradition is not the right word but cultural um set of values traditions um practices which looks like a religion, but doesn't have to have a God in, in the background. So I, I think that's why people are so attracted to human rights. It's a belief system. It's a, um, it's clear, it's written down. It has its sort of set texts and the eye and, and just like religious teachings, the, 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 the sort of priests of human rights tell you that if you just apply these teachings to your life and to your society, everything will be better. I wanted to uh, wind back and locate you in your story and get a sense of maybe some of the seeds for your preoccupations now. So I'd love to just hear a bit about your childhood, particularly if there were any big ideas in the air that were formative, you know, positively or negatively, whether that's religious or philosophical or political. Um, just it's lovely to hear where people have come from. 
Well, I I grew up in Manchester, um, in South Manchester, um, and I, I I I don't. There's anything particularly remarkable about my upbringing. I'm I'm Jewish, um, and my family were very sort of Jewishly involved. Um, although not, I, I wouldn't necessarily describe us as religious. Although Jewish people have a, a strange relationship with the word religious, um, because I, I think the I, I heard someone say about about Jewish people um, that. Everybody, everybody who's more religious than you is crazy, and everyone who's less religious than you is a heathen. Um, and every single Jewish person is 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 on a different sort of bit of a of a very long spectrum. Um, and I think that's that does reflect um, how I was brought up. But we you know we we went to synagogue um, pretty much every week to a sort of local synagogue, um, and I had a bar mitzvah, and we celebrated the festivals, and we always had a Friday night dinner on the Sabbath. But we wouldn't keep the, you know, we wouldn't keep the, and we kept the dietary laws as well. So it's always a big part of my identity. Um, I also, I think in terms of my my values, um, my family weren't particularly political, as in my my, my parents were not particularly, um, so they, they never sort of, I wasn't the kind of child who got taken to protest rallies and, you know, told you know, every morning, what what the injustices of the world were. We, we were I, I, almost the opposite. We we were just sort of left to in that in that sense to get on with things. But my my grandfather um, was very active in politics. He was a Labour councillor for decades and and was the mayor of Manchester um, in the late seventies. And he was a sort of big influence on me when I was growing up. I was lucky enough to have him around, um, and he was also. You know, he was a very, he had a very strong Jewish identity as well and a very out and proud Jewish, you know, the, the, the Jewish people, and I've spoken about this before in the context of anti-Semitism, Jewish people in, in Britain have a very complex relationship with being Jewish publicly um, because of the the environment that they that we've had to be part of pretty much the whole of the our history in this country but you know obviously elsewhere we've we've sort of there's there's a strong element of let's just put our heads down and and um pretend we're just like everybody else because otherwise we're going to be um persecuted um and that obviously was turbocharged because of the holocaust um although the holocaust wasn't uh, my family my direct family didn't experience the holocaust because uh, like a lot of Jews in Manchester we were um we came to the country in the late 19th century uh, to escape the pogroms in Eastern Europe. So that was my sort of, you know, th- that's my, my, that. And, and, and the other really big influence, I was, I was very involved um, from a young age in a, a Jewish youth movement um, called Habonim Draw, which is a socialist um, Zionist left-wing sort of movement, um, a bit like, um, I don't know what it's a bit like, very sort of hippie-ish, um, and I was, it, it, I would from I used to go to camps and do sort of local activities, and then I was a, a leader um, when I was a teenager, and then I went on and sort of spent a year after university running the organisation, and that was a huge. It was a, it's a very the, the Jewish youth movement set up in the Jewish community is very strong. It has certainly when I was growing up, and it and it's um it's a it's a good path into social activism. Um, and I think that's probably, yeah, I, I'm very, I, I like to think of myself in my career as being sort of very quite entrepreneurial and I'd go out and set up blogs and charities and podcasts and, and, I, and I'm very sort of active publicly. And I think a lot of that confidence came from being part of this Jewish youth movement set up. I'm going to ask about your relationship with 
your Jewish identity now, and particularly in terms of um, practice, sort of spiritual engagement, if any. And I was I was interviewing um, Jonathan Sachs about this not too long ago, and it was really interesting because he said to me, "Well, we just don't often ask those kinds of questions of each other as Jews." You know, I was sort of. It's, I've come from a sort of evangelical, charismatic background where it's very much about how are you doing with God? You know, it's very like intense about your internal spiritual life, which has its pros and cons. Um, but I realise there's a sort of translation problem sometimes. So forgive me if the the language doesn't quite carry, but you can see what I'm getting at. Kind of there's the public Jewish identity. What What does it mean for you more personally, more privately, if anything? Yeah, I mean, Jonathan Sachs <laughs> would know much better than I do, um, but he's absolutely right. We don't talk about belief in God. I mean, I, I can't speak for every Jew, but, you know, it's just not a big thing that faith, you know, is is is, is not a word which permeates Judaism. I don't, I don't think it's pra- practice is the is the by the byline or the byword. Um, and, and my Jewish identity um which is going to sound a bit strange, um, potentially, particularly to, to Christians, um, probably reflects that quite well because I'm not, I, I don't believe in God and I haven't believed in God. I probably, I probably haven't believed in God since my late teens, but I probably, I didn't admit it publicly and to myself, to my family, probably till my mid twenties. Um, but I'm, I, I especially, I've always had a very, very strong Jewish identity. Um, as I said, I, I grew up, going to synagogue a lot. It was something I always enjoyed, although I, not something I was deeply involved. I, I wasn't that involved in Jewish education. I didn't, apart from through my youth movement, which was almost quite, um, if you're familiar with it, with um, a kibbutz in, in, in the, these sort of um, communal settlements in, in, in Israel, which is, which was a very big deal in the sixties and seventies. And a lot of um, non-Jewish people went out from all over the world to live in these kind of socialist communes. That was the kind of Judaism that I practiced. It was almost like a post-God Judaism, cultural Judaism. Um, but then when I, when I finished with my, with that side of my life, because I became too old to be part of a youth movement in my sort of mid twenties, I went back and actually um, I studied, I went to a sort of adult education courses. I spent about four years every week doing adult education courses. And I started going to something called Limud. I don't know if you've come across it, but it's a big Jewish learning event, which happens every year. Um, in, 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 at, um, I want to say at Christmas, but it is at Christmas, it's over Christmas. It's the way the Jews of England go and uh, gets place they go to avoid Christmas. Um, but you know, there's lots of good educational stuff there. And I, I, I realized that in my mid twenties, that as I was sort of become becoming a proper adult, that I actually had stopped learning about Judaism probably after my bar mitzvah, you know, when I was 13, I just, cause I'd lost interest. Um, and I suddenly realized that if I wanted to go to synagogue, you know, I, I'd moved like a lot of my friends, I'd moved to London from Manchester. And so I wasn't with my parents. I didn't have a synagogue that I was connected to, but I felt a, a, a loss not having a synagogue. I suddenly realized, but then I didn't know what kind of synagogue I wanted to go to. You know, what did I want to go to an Orthodox synagogue? Like, like I grew up in, um, or something different. Um, and I realized that if I didn't learn about the prayer book, about the, the, about the, the Bible, about, you know, about the history, I wouldn't be able to make those decisions in an informed way. I would just follow my sort of familial instincts, which probably wouldn't satisfy me. Um, so I, so I did start a, a bit more learning and eventually, um, I met my wife, 
I guess when I was 26, 27 and um, she would become my wife. Um, she wasn't my wife when I met her and my wife, Julia, and, and she was, came from quite a similar background. We both kept kosher, you know, eat dietary habits, even though for me, it was more of a, a knee jerk instinct than a value, value based thing. Um, and we sort of went on that journey together. And now we, you know, I've got um, two children um, now and, and we go every week when not in non lockdown, we go to synagogue every week. We're very involved in the community. Um, but I still, I'm not, a, I don't do it because I believe in God. I guess I do it because I believe in Judaism. I believe in the religion as a, as a means of living a in a value, value based community. Um, and I love the community. I love the involvement. I love going to synagogue. I, I, I love it all basically, but I don't do it. I do it for my sort of personal, my family's, um, spiritual well-being i guess not for not because i believe i'm going to go to heaven at the end of it or that that, that there was some revelation from a from a god to three thousand years ago that has led to this place for me so fascinating um there's lots i want to ask there but i want to make sure that we have time to talk a bit more about um human rights so tell me what was the pull of the law and was it from very early days that human rights was going to be your specialism or was it a bit more wiggly than that um, well, I never wanted to be a lawyer when I was growing up, um, and, and I, ne- I didn't want to be a lawyer when I was at university. Um, I didn't want to be a lawyer when I was working for the youth movement that I spoke about. Um, I, I, I went to do a um, after that. Um, I went to do a master's in uh, in the states, Columbia, um, in political science, still not in law. And I kind of I experienced the um, American model of the constitutional, the public lawyer. Um, I sort of got a feel for it. And, and I thought that is something which that's something I'd like to do. Um, and I was still thinking about I could do going to academia or politics or something like that. But I, I, I I'd, when I was at university, when I was doing my BA, I became really, I, I tell you what, I mean, I think that the, the probably the, the, the sliding doors moment for me was, was 9-11, which happened in my um, at the end of my first year, so when the the twin towers, um, and I was doing, I was studying English literature. Um, that's why that's what was my degree, and I um, I had a kind of epiphany when that happened that I suddenly didn't, I couldn't, I wanted to un- try and understand what the hell was going on in the world. Um, I felt under personally under threat for the first time um it was also during the the second intifada in israel you know it was there was a and i was spending a lot of time there um taking kids on tours and um and i i was very close to some um suicide bombings and i was actually very close to the the bombing in london as well um like sort of a minute away on a bus and and all those experiences the, the, that those sort of bad experiences made me it it, it made me very worried about how I was feeling um, and I, and how other people must be feeling um, at that time. And, and I suddenly got a sense of if when our societies um, get into this, this sort of threats stage, this, or this threat mode, um, th- things can start to change quite rapidly and things can start to break down and we can do bad things to each other. And I know that that's hardly a, an original thought. Um, and, and I'd read that um, and I'd read a, a lot about that in, in political science and politics, but I suddenly understood what what how it could happen. 
Um, and, and at that point, I thought, well, I, I've got to try and find a, a way of engaging with the world, which is, you know, which secures the kind of value values and rules to um, to help people get through those times. Um, and that's why I came to human rights through through philosophy, so through Kant, Immanuel Kant, and and John Rawls, and these kind of thinkers who who were very um, the, the lib- who led to liberalism. Um, Locke, you know, who the the idea being you it's it's the times when people are hunkered down into their into their sacred groups. This is the, my problem with the idea of sacredness. When people are hunkered down to their sacred groups um, against other sacred groups, that you lose the when society loses the ability to mediate between those groups, you end up we end up killing each other, we end up torturing each other, we end up um, you know abusing each other. Um, and as a Jewish person, it's kind of you know our recent history is so you know it's full of that. It's it's full of that lesson. That is the lesson of the Holocaust: is that you if you don't if you have societies where it's possible. Um, for, um, for a for a minority or for a, a, a hated group to be exterminated, um, then then you've lost. You you lose everything. So I, I guess it's, I'm, that's a slightly roundabout way of saying that I just came across this idea of human rights as you put in place this framework of values and you embed it in the in the institutions of of societies and between societies to mediate between it. And I, I think human rights is actually very realist. I don't think it's a utopian at all. You know, if you talk about the history of human rights, you look at where they came from. Th- this is, you know, they, they the, the modern human rights system was developed immediately after the second world war, you know, and, and it was, it was a direct response to the atrocities and the, 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 the horrendous um, death toll of the second world war, but not only that of the first world war of the, the depression of the Spanish flu, you know, all of these crises and the world came together and said, just in a kind of moment of clarity and said, we need to, um, we need to try and do so. We need to change something fundamentally about the way we inter engage with each other as nations, as societies within societies. That's where it came from. It's not utopian at all. It's, it's a, it's an, it's a way of saying we can't be trusted um, in these moments of extreme emotion and anger, we can't be trusted. We have to help ourselves by putting in place these structures and these frameworks. Um, so, you know, that is that is so helpful, and you've made you've you've really helped me kind of see. You've really helped me see human rights in a different way, and it strikes me that the thing that interests me, the thread I'm pulling on, is the sort of dispositions, the character, the virtue the habits that we build to act as those kind of breaks on our worst instant impulses. The, and, you know, I'm very interested in the Christian peace building tradition. I mean, what, what is it when Jesus says, love your enemy, when he says, turn the other cheek, I'm always framing that as override your fight or flight. Like recognize that when you are in that threat response, you will see everyone will look like an enemy and you will either want to attack or you will want to run away. But to live in any kind of relationship with each other, whether that's within small communities or families or as citizens, you, you can't attack or run away. There has to be a third thing of staying in the tension. The sort of legal framework could always seem to be a kind of abstract and potentially dehumanizing part of that that sort of had the potential to 
not exacerbate it, but I didn't, I hadn't really seen how much having that break, having that container so that for the moments where we can't be the people we want to be, or for those who haven't had access to spaces of formation to develop virtues and habits in themselves, that there's a hard stop. There's, you know, there's a, there's a line through over which you can't pass. So sorry, that's a very long winded way of explaining why that, what you said was very helpful. Um, in my thinking, uh, let's, let's dig into that a bit more in terms of conflict, difference, disagreement, tribalism, and you in your public voice, because you are a human rights lawyer. So you're working on some of these issues at that level, but you also are a commentator and a podcaster. You have a big Twitter following how kind of what habits, what is the philosophy behind how you engage in public? How are you thinking about using that voice well? And what have you learned? Um, just before I get to that, I just want to pick up on something you said in, in, I thought very eloquently, um, in response to what I just said. Um, and I, and I just want to highlight this, pull out this idea between the personal and the political. Um, and I think I agree with you that if you, if you think that just embedding a, a structure of rules in your society is going to solve a problem, then you have not, you're not a student of history. Um, it, it's just the not, and I, and, and I, I'm going to bastardize George Orwell because I don't know the exact quote, but he said something like, if, you know, a society can, it doesn't matter what the rules of the society is if the pop, if the populace wants something or get it. Um, and, and, and therefore you have a, a few diff- you have to have a few different tracks. You have to have the personal, um, and, and uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, who draft, who was the chair of the drafting committee for the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, said that human rights begin in the small places close to home, and if they're not there, they're not anywhere. And I think, in in a way, she was thinking of of uh, as a woman as well there, because in the in the fifties, she's thinking, oh, this is great, M- men, you know. It's great for men to have rights in society, but what about women who are who have been excluded from society? You know, it's all very well, Mister Great Man, going and spouting his human rights ideas out in public, and then coming home and beating his wife up um, because she's not cleaned his shirt. You know, it's that sort of stuff. And I think it's 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 you've got to figure out both. And I think religion um, is is the best example of of systems of social systems which have managed to sit both in the private and the political um i don't you know but i think there's, there's there's problems with that i mean i speak to a lot of jewish audiences about how how jewish are human rights um and there's there's on on sort of liberal the liberal side of Judaism, there's a lot of talk of, well, you know, you can pull out lots of human rights ideas from the Torah and, you know, from, from the Talmud and from Jewish thinking because of, you know, justice being at the center and um, love thy neighbor as thyself and all. And, and that's all right. It's all true, but it's not the same. And the reason it's not the same is because Judaism is designed f- for Jews. It's an exclusionary and a, a, um, creed, you know, it, and all religions are, no matter how easy it is to convert, you're still, convert asking people to convert um, and you're treating people differently if they're in the, than, than if they're out um, and, and it is different it's not necessarily i'm not that's not i'm not leveling a criticism at the moment but it is i think that's a point of difference and i've been engaging on social media um about human rights since i started as a lawyer so for 10 years now 
um, since I, you know, at the moment I qualified, I set up this uh, human rights blog, which became very popular. Um, I set up a, a charity called Each Other, which used to be called Rights Info, which is about educating and um, advocating for human rights sort of online. Um, I do a podcast, but I also do Twitter as sort of my my personal platform. And I do lots and lots of media as much as I as I can lay my grubby hands on um, to try and, and all with the same purpose, which is basically to explain these ideas um you know in a way i'm a a bit of an evangelist um for human rights to use the the religious terminology but i am um i think of myself as you know that person is i want to be you know i i think these values are really helpful um they're a really good way of mediating um between conflicts in society they are a good way to understand the way we behave and to try and mitigate some of our worst attributes so I am. A, I try and be out there, you know, presenting things in in that way, and 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 I also try because I understand. So, so I go back to my youth movement background because it is so influential on me. But we had this. There's this term. Um, it's a Hebrew term called dogmatishit, which means to um, loosely translated, it means to lead by example. Um, and it's not. It's it's a very common sort of expression in that world. Um, and and it's and I always. I, I saw that, you know, very, very clearly when I was, I did a lot of youth leadership and I saw very clearly that the, it didn't matter what you taught people with your mouth, if what you did with the rest of your body was, was different because and children pick up on hypocrisy as you know, they've got the, a very, very keen sense of hypocrisy. They see it all the time with their parents. You know, God knows I'm, you know, I, my kids see it with, with us. Um, but but you know that they, they're a good. It's a good learning process because you've got to realise there's no point trying to tell other people things unless you do. You you behave in that way, or at least you can be seen as trying to behave in that way. And you're and and that's always been my approach on social media to try and first of all to be honest, um, as in at what my own biases are and where I'm coming from, because it's crazy to think that. We, anybody doesn't have biases and it's and it's kind of it's just hypo, it's just hypocritical and 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 wrong to pretend that you're objective um so to try and sort of be seen to be wrestling with my own biases um sort of be doing it and also be seen to be doing it but but sometimes you just have to withdraw um and that can sometimes be seen as being weak on in that social that sort of childish social media that bullying environment and um, because you've you've sort of it's, it's it's turning the other cheek basically, um, but I I I think about it as a long term game. It's that for me, my my credibility and my dignity is more important than the short term battles that I might win. You know, oh great, I've I've stood on someone now and I've crushed them, and that's just great. You know, I feel fantastic for five seconds, um, and I think th- those are rules for life. Really, you know, just not to be the the bully i do a lot a lot of commentary on human rights and always have that's controversial but it's nothing like politics which is which is really sort of dog eat dog um and i try you know i've i've that 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 is a different environment and what makes you stay and i have to lay my cards on the table here as a sort of you know someone who's also on twitter who has found lots of opportunity and joy in the platform, actually. But quite a lot of the wisest people I know, you know, they're sort of the 
the old souls that I want to sit at their feet and learn from, uh, their line is just get off it. Like it's corroding your soul. It's short term. It's, um, you know, co- constantly keeping us in this dopamine response. It's performing for a crowd. And the argument I always make to myself is if you're interested in our common life and in our common conversation, and Twitter is not all of that, it's a subset of it, but it's a subset that's quite influential, I think, then to just seed the ground feels also irresponsible to me. So I'm obviously fishing for a particular answer and ignore that. But yes, what do you think are the positives of being actively engaged, even as we know that it can it can turn us into people we don't want to be? And sometimes it just feels like I'm adding to the noise, frankly. Yeah, no, no one comes out of Twitter unscathed, <laughs> especially if you get involved in the more controversial issues. Um, it's impossible. You're, you're, you know, that, that you, you come out with scars. Um, but I think that's, you know, I've got a, I've got a mostly positive relationship with Twitter still in the sense that I've been able to have a platform that I would never have had as a junior lawyer, as someone, you know, who, with, who's unknown for, you know, for any other reason. Um, I've been able to express ideas. You know, I'm, I'm most interested in being there to express ideas and to understand other people's ideas. Um, and I don't think that's the same as saying you just have to listen to everybody and try and understand where they're coming from, you know, because I don't, I don't think that's quite, it's not quite the same. Um, and I think people get a bit wrapped up in that. Um, but you know, I, I've been able to spend 10 years tweeting about thing I'm something I'm passionate, passionate about, which is this human rights laws. And it's so interesting. There's so much going on. There's so many issues arise. I'm um, just to take an example. Um, with coronavirus, when coronavirus came out, when it started to take have effect in this country, um, I felt I felt ready to um, to engage with it from a human rights perspective because I've engaged in lots of issues with from a human rights perspective, and I thought that is this is something which human rights was designed to deal with. It's a large scale social breakdown. Um, in you know, in every quarter, in the economics, in health, in um, just the way we treat each other, in the lockdown, you know, human rights is designed for this. This is this is what this is what it's there for is to help us through. And I stayed very much in my lane, which I think is one of the tricks with social media. Is as soon as you pull out of lane, you open yourself up to a lot more shit. To, you know, to coin a phrase. Then you just you and you risk saying something stupid so much more yeah, easily, it's, don't it's, you? And it's, then regretting it's because, it. And- because in in my lane, I'm a human rights lawyer, and I know about human rights law. I'm I'm experienced. I've been involved in lots and lots of cases. I've been in every court. I've been involved in you know six public inquiries. I I, I really get it, you know. And I, and I and I like. I'm not the best, but I'm you know I I can talk about it with authority, and I can engage in authority. And if I screw up, I can tell people I screwed up, and it's all fine. As soon as I pull out, you know, in, into the next lane, whether it's a, usually about politics or about, sci- you know, the science, I've been very, very careful not to say anything about the science behind coronavirus. I know nothing. I'm not a scientist. I have no idea what the best way to deal with this horrendous crisis is. Whereas if I stick in my own lane, I can deal with that. And, and that's, um, and you can, if you can achieve that on social media, it can be so valuable and so interesting. And you, and then you can cross pollinate with the people who know about the other stuff. 
you know, the scientists, the um, social scientists, the um, epidemiologists, the politicians, you know, who were all there, the journalists who were all there and doing their bits and playing their role in dealing with this crisis. And that's where social social media is, you know, it's, it's, it's a means of pollinate, pollinating and, and, and diffusing ideas. And I think it's so great. Um, but the problem is when you start, when, when you deal with stuff that is not directly, um, if you try and apply a framework to another issue, um, whether it's racism in a political party or I guess tra- tra- the trans rights debate, which is another, you know, almost impossible to engage with issue without being, um, without getting into sort of very hostile um, discussions with people, which can be very sort of, you know, unenlightening and 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 and, and um destructive they're, they're corrosive um some issues you know it you, you can't just stay in the lane because people come into your lane and people sort of try and knock you off the road basically um but i think with other issues you can and 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 it just you know i've always just taken it as a issue by issue thing and at the moment i feel very happy on I, I know if i'm happy on social media because i've not deleted the app on my phone <laughs> i go you know i'll delete if i'm feeling unhappy and like i just need to get off i'll delete the app and the app is currently on my phone so that is a it's a good time <laughs> on social media you have more self restraint than me when i'm needing time i'll have to delete the app i have to put a blocker on the browser and i have to make sure it applies to all of the other devices which is a, a thing to be ashamed yeah. of um yeah Adam Wagner, thank you so much for uh, a very illuminating and stimulating discussion on the sacred. Thanks very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Soup Shop Productions, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast or me at Theos Elizabeth or the sacred podcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. We're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk.